Hello and welcome to For Flying Out Loud, where we continue our mission to help inspire, empower and help all of our listeners to dream bigger. It could be argued that any true pilot will love Top Gun. For those not old enough to remember it or for those that haven't yet seen it, where have you been, by the way, you have to check it out. It's one of the most iconic opening scenes to any movie ever, in my opinion. Steam catapult launches, landings on board, a floating airfield that is an aircraft carrier. It's about as epic as it gets. For me, it was the movie that ignited my passion for aviation and I would give one of my flying arms to be able to launch from a ship from zero to 200 miles per hour in just a couple of seconds. Today, I'm super excited to be talking with a pilot that has not just experienced the reality of this, but who will also be talking about loads of other cool things that will really get the adrenaline flowing. So let's get started. Tango line targeted group both by 131 20, 12,000. Fang 2, monitor north arm drag 22,000. Bumper bogeyed up Fang 2 to the north arm drag. He is a former Royal Navy frontline operational fast jet pilot with tours flying the Harrier both as an operational pilot and as a flying instructor. Having pretty much left the Royal Navy in an attempt to fulfil his real passion, flying a 747 just like his dad, a twist of fate saw him return and fly F-18 Hornets on an exchange tour with the US Navy. Simon, to his mum and dad, or Scranbag, as you know to everybody else, welcome to For Flying Out Loud. It's great to be here, Andrew, but I can see we've already started off with the failed 747 banter, so it's going to be, a, it's going to be <laughs> it's an interesting hour. It's going to be an interesting hour. <laughs> yeah. um, before we start, I just want to touch on, on uh, Scranbag. Uh, my nickname, for those that know me well enough, is uh, Scrabble, and that um, comes from the fact that my surname, Neo Fitu, although I've never actually added it up, but allegedly all of those letters would score well in Scrabble. Where does uh, Scranbag come from, Scranbag? <laughs> so when you join the military you go through basic training for the navy that's dartmouth and it's will come as no surprise that it's a lot of inspections a lot of ironing shirts into exact quarters of drawers uh, and suffice to say that i wasn't very good at it and one day someone within about a week said wow you really are a scram bag uh, and here we are 23 <laughs> years later and it's uh, it's stuck all the way through there no one calls me simon in the in the navy it's and nothing changes you still can't iron <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly so I will start off these chats by asking you how you got into flying. So what was it that got you into flying? Yeah, we kind of touched on it, didn't we? My, my dad was a, an airline pilot, uh, flew 747s. Uh, my mum was a stewardess. They met on a trip. Uh, and so I grew up surrounded by aviation. And of course, for our generation, um, you know, growing up in the 80s and the 90s before 9-11, uh, there was an open flight deck door. And so when we went on holiday, generally speaking, my dad would fly the airplane because that meant we only needed three tickets. And I would sit on the flight deck for takeoff and landing. Uh, and I just remember thinking, this is the coolest thing in the world. I've got to do Absolutely. this. Absolutely, Yeah, it's a real shame, isn't it, that you can't now go and sit on the flight deck, because I remember doing it, I, was, I, I remember doing it as a teenager at some point, and then probably just, yeah, maybe still just as a late teenager, getting to sit on the flight deck and watching you know, these two pilots um, land this big jet. And I remember thinking, that's just really cool. It's a great shame we can't do that these days. No, it's, it's, it's brilliant, isn't it? And, and of course, you can watch it on YouTube, but nothing really compares to being there in the flesh. 
Absolutely. So did you not initially then want to follow, uh, follow rather in your dad's footsteps? I, I did. I guess I just wanted to be a pilot. And, and yeah, I think to start off with, I wanted to be an airline pilot. But And you'll relate to this, Andrew. That as an airline pilot, when you go on holiday, you don't want to fly. So when yeah. my dad went on when my dad went on holiday, he, he didn't want to fly on an airplane, so we'd drive to the Lake District or to the south of France or somewhere like that. And I remember sitting on a boat uh, in the middle of the, the Lake District, and this is probably in the late 80s on Windermere, as the Buccaneers and the Jaguars and the God, the F-111s are charging up the valleys there. And I remember looking at them thinking, I have got to do That's that. That's what I want to do. just looks awesome. Uh, and so that kind of ignited that passion for military aviation. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And we don't see as many fast jets at low level these days, but um, certainly, and air shows, of course, you know, air shows really got my my sort of passion for wanting to fly fast jets going. Of course, most of us, not, not everybody, some people come to flying and becoming a pilot later in life, but most of us have this passion when we're at school. How was school for you, Simon? Because one of the things I'm often asked about is, do you have to be an A-star student uh, to be a pilot? And, and I often say, well, no, I mean, I, I wasn't for, for various reasons. But how about you? How did you get on at school? Well, I'll be blunt. I was absolutely not an A-star student. Uh, I, I enjoyed school and I was very lucky that I, I went to a very good school. Uh, but I, I struggled at school uh, for, for, for a variety of reasons. So uh, I, I cobbled together some very average GCSEs and frankly, some below average A-levels. Yeah, likewise. I mean, for me, it was, um, I spoke about it in my first podcast and touched on it, I think, on another one. It was being bullied at school. It wasn't popular to be clever or to be good at athletics. Um, and and that led to me not doing as well as I probably should have done. What was it for you then, Simon, that meant that you weren't achieving as you perhaps could have done? Well, as a young boy, my teachers recognised in me that there were basically two different Simon Rawlinses in the classroom. There was the Simon Rawlins who would participate in class and was reasonably bright, understood subjects and concepts. And then there was a Simon Rawlins who would be on paper submitting work that was just pretty pretty rubbish, to be honest with you. And so when I was about eight or nine, I got sent to see an educational psychologist, went through, you know, hours and hours of tests, uh, and I was diagnosed with dyslexia. Wow. Wow. So eight or nine years old. So that will obviously would account for um, these two different Simon Rawlins, as you mentioned. Can you tell me a bit more about dyslexia? Because I'll admit I don't know a huge amount about it. How does it tend to manifest itself and how did it affect you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, dyslexia, there's no easy answer to that is the first way of saying this. It, it, dyslexia is almost in a way kind of a spectrum. There's, there's different kinds of it. It manifests itself in different ways. Uh, for me, it was in my written work, specifically with my prose and with my writing as opposed to numbers. I, I've never had a problem with numbers, fortunately. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, but for me, it was in my written work. It, and it manifests itself in different ways. And it's basically uh, 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 the way that the brain interprets information. A lot of it is to do with how you see. It's connected to your vision. And it's how you interpret that information. Uh, and with people with dyslexia, um, there's a, a little bit of a jink in that. And, and so it can manifest itself in different ways. But for you, obviously, it affected you academically. But you'd got this passion for aviation and you, you got your first test, taste rather of some flying training. And there was some sort of good news then when that started. So could you tell us a bit more about your first taste of flying training and the sort of good news that manifested itself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was in the air cadets at school, though, although you probably won't like this, Andrew, because I was in the CCF. And I know the ATC always <laughs> said that the CCF aren't real cadets, but I was in the CCF at school. And of course, I got to fly air experience flights in chipmunks, 
which was just brilliant. Uh, and then I got to do some gliding, some vigilant uh, motor gliding. And it was on one of those courses that, that, that for the first time, uh, my instructor turned around and said, do you know what, actually, you're, you're quite good at this. You can do this. So I then went on to the AGT, was able to fly solo. I did a flying scholarship. Uh, uh-huh. And that really, and that really, you know, that started the ball rolling. So those aspects from the dyslexia from the written work weren't affecting you in the aviation environment, or certainly not as much as because I guess you were working with more numerical data, you were working with pictorial data, which I guess is very different to as much written information. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've 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 had a successful career, so 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 it hasn't affected me. There, there are some core attributes that you need to be a pilot, and which dyslexia can affect. You know, we need to be able to read, we need to be able to pass exams, we need to be able to memorise checks. So you've got to be able to do that. In my case, although I am dyslexic, um, whether it's affected me or not, I don't know. But I have I have had a successful career despite it. I guess one of the issues uh, with something like dyslexia is that if you're not achieving, you don't get the grades at one stage, which means you then don't go on to perhaps be as successful at the next stage and get the grades at the next stage. And it all happens from a young age. So perhaps you then don't ultimately achieve your full potential through no fault of your own. It's not just, it sounds to me, the dyslexia. It's the fact that it it could affect each stage. Yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. As I've got a bit older, I have literally dozens and dozens of coping techniques that I use to the extent that a lot of people probably wouldn't realise I was dyslexic. Right. But, it, but exactly as you say, when you're a child and you haven't developed those coping mechanisms and those techniques, you do suffer academically. That affects the grades you get. That affects the university you go to. That affects the, the course you go to. And so it can have this really, really negative impact on young people. Um, you know, Fortune Aviation, we have minimum academic standards but we're actually more interested in, in your performance in the aeroplane. So as long as you can get those minimum yeah. academic standards, uh, then, you know, then it's up to, the, up to how you perform in the aeroplane. But uh, it's definitely a, a, definitely a thing for young people uh, starting off where they, where they just started a, a, at a bit of a they, – they have challenges right from the beginning. Yeah, well, thanks for your honesty there, Simon. And it'll be an inspiration to people out there. Not uh, everybody listening to this is going to be dyslexic, of course, but there'll be challenges that a lot of people are facing, maybe at school or academically. And hearing that you did overcome it, you did find some coping mechanisms and some ways to carry on and find your niche, which you did, hasn't held you back. So that's really encouraging, I think, for people to hear. You said you did a flying scholarship, as did I. I, I was 16 when I started my flying scholarship. I, at that, at these days, you can go solo, I think, at 16 years old in a powered aircraft. But uh, back in 1992, um, for me, it was going solo at 17 years old was the earliest. And I, I went solo, I think, within the first week of my uh, 17th birthday. And... Um, for me, it was, uh, you know, it was just an amazing thing to be able to go solo. And I was, I was taking friends flying. I took, I, I thought, I thought, I didn't really know what I was doing with girls. To be honest with you, I probably still don't know what I'm doing with girls. I was say, you I, still don't. <laughs> no, nothing's changed then, has it? <laughs> but I remember taking this. This uh, she was a sister of one of the other people, and of course, I said, hey, do you want to go fly? I took this girl flying. She said, "What time are you picking me up?" I said, so, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, what time are you picking me up? I said, well, I can't drive. She said, what do you mean you can't drive? And I hadn't had a driving lesson, but I had my private pilot's licence. Um, and in fact, I'm a bit embarrassed to tell you that I failed my driving test. Having been the youngest holder of a PPL ever by that stage, I failed my driving test three times, which is a, probably a bit of a record. Um, I don't uh, know about you, Simon. No, unfortunately, it's it's not a record. I'm a, I am passed on the fifth attempt. On the f- <laughs> yeah. 
And so when I did my first solo, I was at, as a, I was at RAF Abington. It's called Dalton Barracks now, uh, flying a vigilant motor glider on my first solo. And then when I landed, I had to wait for two hours for my mum to come and pick me up. <laughs> it's, a, it's incredible, isn't it? And then we think about our parents coming and picking us up from flying these airplanes. They must have been having absolute kittens watching their sort of, you know, pretty much, you know, in, in real terms, as you get older, you realise how quickly life goes by. You were probably looking at their babies, essentially, flying these aircraft, and then they've got to go and pick you up. Incredible yeah, stuff, really. <laughs> um, one of the things I'm going to mention, we've, we've known each other 20 years now, and we we went through flying training. I'm sort of going to skip to um, the later stages of flying training, which were held at RAF Valley in Anglesey. And this is where we were doing what was known as our advanced flying training, then um, tactical weapons training, flying the Hawk aircraft, same as the Red Arrows uh, fly. And um, I'd have a great day's flying, you know, flying with you, we'd come back, everyone would go to the bar, grab a few beers. And... Um, and then you disappear for what felt like hours, and 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 you 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 would come back and and no no one knew where you'd been. It this, all sounds, this, sounds, very... this, this sounds quite dodgy, yeah. <laughs> well, it is quite dodgy actually, because I'd like you to tell everybody what you were doing in the middle of your fast jet training. Well, so the first thing about the military is never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So the rumor is that I was flying real time transatlantic flights on flight simulator. That's the rumor. <laughs> Uh, is it a rumor <laughs> it's it's it i mean i was never a member of a virtual airline but yes i have dabbled in flight simulator well that's only because virtual airlines that we have these days did not exist then i have no doubts that if they did exist you would have been doing it and we discovered that you were actually <laughs> heading up to check in with gander oceanic to make sure that you didn't miss uh the, the next call on your flight plan so um nothing changes we'll come back to what you're doing now um <laughs> later on in this interview um, but yeah, you, know, you and I then went on to well join the operational conversion unit, is where which is where we went from you know eff effectively finishing the most of the flying training, but now we're moving on to an operational aircraft. For me, that was the Sea Harrier FA2, uh, and for you, although you were a Navy pilot as I were was, um, and, and ordinarily both of us would have gone to fly the Sea Harrier, you didn't. What happened to you, Simon? Yeah, this is at the time when the, it had been announced that the Sea Harrier was going to be retired and the Navy was going to transition to flying the RAF Harrier, the GR-7, which would become the GR-9. And I think, you know, the role of the the, the, the Air Force Harrier was ground attack, the Sea Harrier more air-to-air. -air. And I think because of my experiences on Lake Windermere as a boy, I really wanted to get into that low-level attack environment. And so when the opportunity came to go straight to the GR-7, and in fact, I was the first Navy pilot from Valley to do that, I jumped at that opportunity. I would love to have flown the Sea Harrier, don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, I, I, I sure? wanted to be at level. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I was I mean, good it was enough. Not, it was, one, yeah. <laughs> the Sea Harrier was an iconic aeroplane, of course, first uh, saw uh, service in the Falklands conflict, onwards to uh, Bosnia and I-7, then a brief spell in Sierra Leone. I uh, didn't see any operational service, although I was a, a frontline Sea Harrier pilot, I didn't see any operational service. And actually, it might surprise um, a lot of our listeners to know that a lot of frontline pilots may never see operational service where it's all about being ready um, being trained to go and do the job but that was very different for the Harrier GR9 and you in fact uh, did several tours and um, I think you mentioned you'll have to correct me but a couple of hundred operational missions in Afghanistan 
Could you tell us more about what that operational environment was like, Simon, the challenges of it, you know, perhaps what you enjoyed about it uh, and what you didn't enjoy about it? No, no, absolutely. I mean, as you say, I, my t- my timing was either perfect or really bad, depending upon your point of view. I did five deployments to Afghanistan. I flew 193 combat missions, the wow. vast majority of which were very, very routine, very, very boring, just patrolling. Um, but you, like you said, you're on call, you're ready to respond. And then when it does kick off, um, it goes from, you know, noughts to 100 very, very quickly. Um, I think my, you know, my overriding memory of, of, of operational flying was we clearly do a lot of training. The Harrier was out there as a close air support platform, and we trained extensively in the UK with the guys that we were going to be working with Afghanistan. It's very procedural. It's a very sterile environment. Everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone's being very professional. Mm-hmm. What you can never take into account is when the bullets actually start flying for real and you hear the fear in people's voices. Yes, and that that is now a completely different game, and that that's a standout uh, recollection that I have. And then, of course, that that invokes a psychological response from you because you realise that if you get this wrong, people on the ground are going to lose their lives. So this is now on to you. And also in Afghanistan, the rules of engagement, which are very very strict, so you're you're controlling this this fight on the ground, not controlling it, but you're trying to make an assessment on it. You can't see what's going on from the altitude that we're flying at. You're looking through a targeting pod, which is like looking through a microscope. So you're trying to picture the scenario on the grounds and then making a a legal assessment as to whether you can engage in accordance with the rules of engagement that were very, very complicated. So it's an an incredibly stressful environment, um, Mm. you know, for all concerned, a little bit less so for us because we're not actually getting shot at very much. But, you know, nothing really prepares you for that. And you obviously, you know, we hear this, don't we? The training kicks in. Did the training kick in for you in terms of, you know, remaining level-headed um, despite, you know, hearing stuff happening for real, which is very different to the training environment? But did the training kick in? Could you stay level-headed? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. Um, you know, the first thing is that I was very, very privileged to fly with, a, a on the various squadrons I was on, a group of absolute professionals from our most junior engineers right up to the squadron commanders. Absolutely. The Harrier Force was a brilliant force. Uh, we were, And then the other thing that we did a lot was a lot of CRM. So people who don't think that you do CRM in single-seat fast jets, I, I can absolutely assure you that you do. And so when things are kicking off and when, you know, you, you're starting to get a bit excited, that's when you start bringing the other guy, other guy or girl, into your cockpit and you start, you know, going through that CRM process and making it's sure... It's interesting, that- isn't it? Because... Um- I spoke in my first podcast about uh, an engine failure I had and my wingman in another Harrier uh, was backing me up and essentially it was CRM but in two different cockpits as you've just stated and that is harder in many ways than doing it sat next to somebody which is what I do in the day job as a 787 pilot now but um, you're absolutely uh, right. Did any of those events or those uh, missions, sorties, um, leave you with any sort of lasting effects, Simon? Did you, you know, even even now? Uh, I mean, I think about Afghanistan quite a bit. It would be strange if I didn't. I mean, as I said, it was such a, a, a central part of my experience on the Harrier. It would almost be strange if it, if it didn't affect me. Um, 
I, I don't have PTSD, I don't think. Um, I think about Afghanistan, those thoughts are not unpleasant. Uh, I don't typically have nightmares about it. Uh, but, we, you know, mental health is a big, a big issue now, particularly with veterans, Absolutely. particularly with the suicide rate that we've got. We've got to keep talking about this. I, I think from a fast jet pilot's point of view, you are quite lucky because you, you are separated from that fight. You don't hear the bullets whizzing past your ear like the guys on the ground do or even the helicopter mates do. So as a fast jet guy, we, we are quite separated from it, but you just you hear it. Absolutely. I think mental health awareness obviously uh, from my perspective has moved on a long way even in the last five years or say I think the military is is starting to improve a lot more could be done Um, and in fact having spoken about what I think very clearly was PTSD that I suffered with after witnessing a a fatal accident um, that you know a lot of people have, have listened to that and a lot of people do need to talk about things so I'd encourage people to talk about it if they are going through a, a stressful time and that might be you know what at the beginning of your flying training and something it might not be ptsd but it might be something that's really really bothering you just go out find another pilot uh, talk to them most of us at some point have gone through some stressful times and um you know are, are there to listen and help yeah and it's you're absolutely right it's all about communication it's about talking it's about listening that's the first that's the first step but uh, yeah we gotta we gotta do more though yeah thank you simon i agree with you you went from your time on the front line then into an instructional role. And, you know, for me, I would have, I think, jumped to the chance because I really like helping people. That's why I run my business. How did you feel about moving into an instructional role? <laughs> Maybe this says something about me as opposed to you then. So I was kicking and screaming, frankly. Uh, my view at the time was that if you're a Navy fighter pilot, you're on the front line, you're on aircraft carriers, you're deployed in Afghanistan. That's what Navy fighter pilots do. <laughs> yeah. They don't spend their time on training squadrons in the backseat of the T-Bird teaching people academic bombing at Hole Beach. So I, I went kicking and screaming. I was a, a weapons instructor already, so it was inevitable. I was going to have to go back there because you need experienced people teaching on the OCU. Surprisingly for me, uh, as I started instructing there, I realised I absolutely loved it. There is a I, nice side to scramble. I, <laughs> there is a nice. I really, really enjoyed it. It was it was a really rewarding tour. So I was I was wrong about that. It was great. I loved it. What were some of the most rewarding aspects? Would you say of being a was a weapons instructor? You say that you were you were involved in. Yeah, I was a weapons instructor. So you've got your flying instructors who teach people to fly the aeroplane and your weapons instructors who teach them to fight it. I, I kind of enjoyed all of it. On the one hand, you go and fly some really exciting, complicated missions with a, a you know big int scenario, trying to make it as realistic as possible for the students. And then the next day, you might be in the back seat of the T-Bird, not physically flying the aeroplane, but you know coaching a student around that pattern. And I just really enjoyed that variety of the flying. And even when I wasn't physically flying the aeroplane myself, I enjoyed coaching um, you know, students into you know into into getting better and better and better. There's a great reward in it, isn't it? It's something I do now in the business. If I'm if I'm helping somebody, you know, interview coaching or group exercise coaching, and you, that light bulb comes on and people recognise where it is that they were going wrong, and then you start to see them do better. Then they grow in confidence. Then they do even better. It's um, it's really really re- rewarding from my point of view. Going back to your time at school. Um, do you think that all the struggles you had with dyslexia perhaps made you a better or even a more understanding instructor? Well, I mean, the first thing you'd have to ask my students and see what they okay. felt. <laughs> yeah, they might have had a very, they might have a very different, uh, a very different view on this one. I, I, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that because 
you know, things did not necessarily always come naturally to me, that I've had to work quite hard to overcome some of these challenges. That I think empathy in an instructor is really important. I think we've both flown with instructors who don't have empathy, and, yeah. and it's, they're, they're terrible. So uh, you have to empathize. Uh, and so I, hopefully I, I was an empathetic, empathetic uh, instructor. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I've learned I wasn't very good, um, again, as I've said previously in, in another episode, uh, accepting critique initially. I've improved markedly. I'm sure some people would say I still don't entirely uh, take critique, but I've improved. But if you're going to offer critique, it needs to be done with a level of empathy and it needs to be constructive. If it's not constructive, what's the point in, in offering that feedback or that critique to somebody? Would you have any tips out there, Simon, whether it's uh, you know an aspiring pilot or even an experienced pilot as a flying instructor, having been a flying instructor rather, for anyone going through flying training, um, what tips would you give them? Do you know it's going to sound it's going to sound rehearsed, it's going to sound cheesy, but it, it comes down to preparation. That the, the more work you can do on the grounds, you can free up spare capacity in the air. And certainly for me, you know, when I was struggling a little bit on the Harrier to start with, and I struggled on the Harrier. Uh, it was down to a lack of preparation. And sometimes yeah. that preparation, I mean, we're talking hours and hours and hours. I, I really think preparation, 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 it just does so much. If every single tiny bit of capacity you can spare up, it's, 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 it's going to help you. 100%. And if there's anyone listening out there and they think, oh, you know, once I get my license or once I qualify as a frontline pilot, you know, I can just relax, go and enjoy myself it's just like the movies. It absolutely isn't. Well, some aspects are like the movies, but but it absolutely isn't. And that preparation no, n- never stops. Um, so it is, you know, being a pilot is a demanding profession it's something it is a, a true profession where you do need to keep learning you know as a military pi- pilot people's lives are in your hands as a commercial pilot people's lives are in your hands and it is incumbent upon everybody to keep working and preparing and and um, you and i both share that mentality at the end of your instructional tour something tragic really for both of us happens what what was that yeah sdsr 10 and so the government decided to scrap the harrier and uh, at the time, uh, when I looked at that, I went, well, that's, that's it. That's the end of my fast jet flying career. That's the end of naval aviation. It's all going to go to the Air Force. And, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been fun while it's lasted, but it's, but it's done. It's over. Uh, so I went and worked in accident investigation for a, a brief period of time with a view to exiting uh, the services, exiting the Navy. Yeah, it was a really odd time, wasn't it? I could pretty much get my head around the Sea Harrier going, although it had a very capable radar, a very capable weapon system, the Amram missile associated with that radar. It was an old airframe and I could sort of get my head around it. But the GR9 really wasn't. It was a it was a very up to the minute heavily utilised, incredibly useful asset. And I couldn't get my... At this stage, I was now in the airline world, but I couldn't get my head around the end of the, the Harrier, particularly the GR9. What did you think to it? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it's a family show, isn't it? So I won't, I won't tell you what I think about it. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't agree with the decision. I still don't. But it's happened. It's done. It's over now. We have to move on. And it's a really good future for naval aviation now. So there is it light is at now. the end. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but yeah, I, I, uh, I've got my very strong views on SDSR ten. Okay, yeah, I think we both do. So we, you've you've 
effectively now, that's that's as far as you're concerned, that's the end of your fast jet flying. How did that affect you psychologically? What what did you sort of think what was your future? I was um, I, I was gutted. Uh, to be honest with you, it, it, I wasn't ready to to hang up my my boots yet. I, I I wanted to carry on doing it, so it was a it was a tough time, and to a certain extent, that sort of disappointment and and in a way, anger was shaping yeah. how I was thinking. I was very much catastrophizing. I was looking at it, kind of going, "This is the end. There's no more naval aviation. Let's just cut and run." Uh, actually, I was wrong, I, I, and I'm happy to admit that I was completely wrong. So what did you actually, uh, we're going to talk about why you were wrong, but what did you do, do immediately following that decision? So the, the military have this this interesting system whereby when an aeroplane crashes, they, they ask someone from a completely different community to come in and investigate it. And the idea is that you have a fresh set of eyes. So I found myself not just investigating a tornado accident, but actually leading the investigation into a tornado accident. Wow. Which both both of the guys survived, which was good. I good. think if you're in a, in a in a fatal accident, it's different. So because it wasn't fatal, it was really interesting. A really interesting time. And especially, I guess, because the tornado had two crew, pilot and navigator, and Harry has one crew, a pilot, uh, doing everything. So I guess that was a really interesting thing. I suppose it, it is useful to have a different set of eyes on things. Did you enjoy that uh, that sort of experience? I, I, of I was. It was. It? Yeah, I mean, it was hugely daunting to start with. But actually, as I look back on it now, I really did. And it also sparked a real interest. You talk about, you know, Twin Crew and CRM. It sparked a real interest that, I, that I've that i got and still have in, in human factors and, and, and mental models and how humans operate, not just under stress, but under extreme stress. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the CRM world has moved on a long way in all of the aviation world, particularly it started from uh, the typical two crew operation, which would be in an airliner. Um, and and even that human factors training, that crew resource management training has now moved into other areas not related to aviation. So the medical profession is a great example of this, how um, commercial airline crew resource management and human factors training has transcended into the medical profession. Would you say, from your experience of that accident investigation, um, moved into sort of the two-seat military world or even other areas of the military world? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a lot that people can learn, briefing and debriefing and how we constantly critique ourselves. I just, it was a really, really interesting experience for me. And also because I then went to fly an aeroplane that I flew with a WIZO, it was also useful to have that initial introduction to that crew. You can tell us concept. what Wizzo means uh, shortly, <laughs> Strandberg. Yep. So, but actually, um, although you enjoyed that role, you thought, well, I'm not going to be flying anymore. And the military has a system which is known as PVR. And uh, essentially, without using loads of acronyms, that, that means resigning, um, you know, quitting. Uh, you're, that's it. You're, you're going to be leaving the services. And that's what you decided to do at this stage because you thought, hey, my, my flying is over. So can you talk us through what happened at that stage? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I said it beforehand. I was I was very much catastrophizing the situation. This is it. It's all over. There's no no no, no point in doing this. So I, I looked at making the transition to to commercial aviation about a year after uh, after the Harrier had been scrapped. And then and then two things happened to me. The first one was that I failed to get into the airline that I wanted to join. Right. And what that did is that then forced me to step back from what I was making very emotionally charged decisions and start to look at things objectively. And when I looked at them objectively, I realized that actually I'd got the situation completely wrong. Naval aviation was not dead. In fact, there were loads of opportunities. Uh, and so sort of cap in hand, I went back and said, any any chance I can stay? <laughs> 
and and they obviously recognise some innate ability in you there, Simon, because they did take you back. And uh, this is then when we move into the super cool, uh, or everything everything you've done so far is super cool, but from my perspective, you know, as a kid watching Top Gun, this is then what led to the next chapter. So what, what did happen then? Well, so as, as you said, I was the, the Navy took me back, which is very kind. I never actually left the Navy. Uh, I was I, so I was able to what's called rescind your PDR rather than trying to rejoin, which is a different a different kettle of fish. Uh, and I went to Portsmouth. I did a staff tour, which was kind of fair enough. You know, you can't necessarily give someone a great job after they've rescinded their PVR, and I, I had no problem with that. A staff tour being uh, working in a desk job, essentially. Yeah, a desk job. I was working on the F-35 programme. But again, it was interesting because I was working on the on the jet carrier integration at the naval headquarters. But look, I won't, I won't try and dress it up. No pilot likes a staff tour, least of all me. Least of all a pilot. <laughs> least of all, least of all a dyslexic pilot, <laughs> where, you're, you know, where, you're, where you're just sat there writing papers and PowerPoint presentations all day long. Uh, but again, for me, very fortunately, a telephone call, uh, uh, the telephone went. It was a call from my appointer, my career manager. And in the military, we have these people who look after our careers for us. Uh, and he said, how do you fancy flying F-18s in California? Amazing. How did and that I feel went, when, when that phone call came through? It was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was awesome. It was awesome. Daunting because you've got to pack everything up. I wasn't married at the time. Pack everything up and move to a foreign country. But I was, um, you know, I was thrilled because this was my route back to flying. It was my route back into the cockpit. And what an amazing opportunity to go and fly an F-18 with the the US Navy. Well, I remember you um, telling me the news and feeling a slight tinge of jealousy. I mean, I'd I'd already been out of the Royal Navy around uh, a few years by this stage. But um, I do remember thinking... Crikey, I'd have loved to have had a go in an F-18. And, and actually, I've previously interviewed in episode two, um, re- Commander Retired uh, Nath Gray, who again, we ba- both know, who was the lead test pilot on the F-35 programme, the first to land on board HMS Queen Elizabeth a couple of years ago. And one of the parts of the interview, I asked him, you know, which, which aeroplane was, you know, the best, the fastest, you know, um, the most capable. And actually he said, hands down, with the exception of the F-35 uh, Lightning II, the most capable uh, aircraft, most capable platform he'd flown and operated was the F-18. Um, would you agree with that, having flown the GR-9? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. So there are some great platforms in the US. They're kind of blessed with with a lot of good platforms. Uh, you know, F-22, Strike Eagle, um, you know, two examples. But uh, yeah, the Super Hornet was an absolute delight to fly. Just, I loved it. I, I mean, you can probably tell my enthusiasm for it. I yeah. absolutely... <laughs> Well, it almost looks like hands-free or carefree, rather, operating. And I've been watching YouTube videos, some awesome ones out there. The Hornet Ball, if anyone's listening out there, again, check out, just Google F-18 Hornet Ball. You'll see some amazing videos out there. And, you know, just essentially looks to me, rather than having to think, right, I'm at this speed, I can pull this much, I've got to select this amount of flap, and then I can pull this much G, otherwise I'm going to overstress the drop tanks or overstress the aircraft or something other other thing that I'm going to get told off for by my <laughs> weapons instructor when I land. Yeah. It looks to me like the F eighteen. You just pull, roll, and pull. Amazing. Now there are some. Now uh, uh, that's 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 quite simplistic. And if you've got any F eighteen pilots listening to this, they'll probably be scream, <laughs> screaming at their uh, screens now. There, there are techniques. There are numbers and speeds that that you fly to maximum perform the aeroplane. But in terms of carefree handling and your particularly your control of alpha, so angle of attack. Then yeah, you just you know it, it was it was brilliant, great. A and great actually, now you're a real pilot because you're an air defence pilot now by this stage. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I suppose so. But uh, you know, I've, I've, yeah, apparently I've, I've graduated to the master race of floating around at thirty thousand feet. But yeah, okay. <laughs> did you did you enjoy the air defence role? Do you know it's funny? Um, I didn't want to go to the OCU to be an instructor. I really enjoyed it. And when it came to air defence, I never really got it. It just seemed to me that you float around at 30,000 feet, you shoot a missile, you run away, you come back, you shoot again. I was like, how is that? What, what's difficult about that or what's fun about it? And and it turns out, you know, for yet again, uh, It's I a loved, bunch of fun. I loved it's an it. absolute it bunch of fun, great. isn't it? I was lucky because also I flew with a, a jet with a, a what's called an ESA radar. So so for a, a, a thick mud mover like me, even I could make air defence look easy with a, an ESA radar. But um, yeah, for those people out there who don't know what we're talking about here, essentially an air defence aircraft would typically have a, a pretty uh, good radar from that we would then look for other aeroplanes, you know, to either shoot down or not be shot down by. Um, the Sea Harrier that I flew had a pretty capable radar, but it wasn't it wasn't great. There was no real filtering of things. It was very you know it was a more well, you had of a to put raw the picture. Yeah, you had to put the radar on the piece of sky. I had to point it exactly where I thought yeah. uh, the enemy aircraft might be. Uh, whereas the ESA radar did something different, Simon, if you could just briefly explain what that did then. Well, yeah, you can be a mud mover like me and rock up to the merge with no SA and still find out where the uh, where the contacts are. So, um, <laughs> so no, I, I loved it. I can't imagine that. That sounds just like a computer game to me. But, uh, no, um, it was great. I, and I flew both. I flew Mexican and, uh, and, and ESA. Uh, but no, I really, really enjoyed air defence, actually. Really enjoyed it. But of course, it's not just air defence. You're flying an F-18, uh, a US Navy F-18, which means one thing, and that is, to me, that's Top Gun. Okay, I've now got to steam catapult launch off an aircraft carrier. I've got to, rather than ho- hover alongside an Harrier and then vertically land, I've got to come in at, I'm going to guess, 150 knots and uh, and, and trap uh, a wire with, with a hook at the back of the aircraft. What was it like, um, Simon? Talk us through the steam catapult launch, for starters. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, so the first thing to point out is that I'm very much an amateur at this. So I I did what's called the carrier qual, and that's the basic qual. So I got a snapshot at, at, at naval aviation. There are people out there who've got hundreds of deck landings. So I just want to caveat that that I'm by no means an expert. Um, but you still do it. You, <laughs> but yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, before you even go to the boat, you spend a month of training doing what's called FCLP, so field carrier landing practices where you just go round and round and round and with the LSOs at the side of the runway marking your approaches. And you have to pass that stage of it and get the standard. Uh, and then you go to the ship, and exactly as you say, I remember my first cat shot because the JBD, the jet, which is the jet blast deflector, which is the big metal bit that comes out at the back of the aircraft to stop the, the that's stop the, the bit thrust. from the beginning of Top Gun. Yeah, that I that's like the, the most. one. That's that's the one. <laughs> so the so the JBD comes down, and of course the the cat, all the steam starts coming out the cat, and the marshaller is there. He's marshaling me onto the line, and I'm getting my launch bar down, and there's all these people peering around the jets, and and I have to be honest with you. I, I was I couldn't stop giggling. I couldn't stop laughing because I'm just sat there going, <laughs> "I'm actually in Top Gun. This is this is the coolest thing I, I have ever yeah. done in my life." And um, you know that cat shot. I mean, everything you read about it, 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 it is true. It is unbelievable. It's just on the boundary of pain. It's not painful, but it's just on the boundary of pain. But I remember, particularly on my first cat shot, as you come off the end of the shot, you're meant to look at the head-up display. And what you're looking for is three figures, three numbers, so at more than 100 knots. And if you don't see three figures, you just eject straight away. You don't even wow. bother with the what's called the E-cat flyaway, the emergency catapult flyaway. You just get out. 
Uh, I'll be honest with you, Andrew. I, I could have been doing five <laughs> knots or f- 500 knots. I had not a clue what was going on. I just literally got flung off the end of this nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, laughing my socks off, and uh, it was absolutely brilliant. Amazing. You know, those three figures, it's just th- back into my head, has come up a uh, sort of mantra uh, from, from the Harrier world. I don't know if it was the same on the GR9. This was the mantra in the Sea Harrier. It was Alpha Water Limiters Wing. So if we didn't get a good launch off the ski jump for whatever reason, we'd Alpha, and I can't remember what the figure of the Alpha was, but we'd 12. increase Alpha on the wing to the 12. That's, that's it. Um, 12 degrees Alpha. Then we put the water injection on. Uh, then we'd essentially push the the throttle full forward to get rid of the limiters that would normally limit the, the, the thrust to a certain amount and then we'd clear the wings that would mean just hitting a, a, a black and yellow panel in the front of the aircraft to whatever was on the wing drop tanks missiles bombs everything would just come off never had to use it fortunately but um uh, the the f-18 launch is is pretty it's automated is that right that the initial part of the launch so it's not necessarily automated. You're right to say that it's hands-off, which, by the way, just, just increases the coolness factor. Just as it's getting cooler and cooler, you know, you then, you then salute the catapult officer and you grab. There's a handrail at the, at the top right-hand side of the canopy. And you yeah, I've seen it in the videos. Uh, and the idea behind that is, is that you're not going to snatch at the stick. So the, the launch is not automated in so much as you're trimming the aircraft and when I say trimming the aircraft, you're selecting an, uh, an angle of attack for the flight control computers to aim for. And as you come off the end of the catapult shot, the, the flight control computers will, will rotate the nose of the aircraft to capture on speed. So it's not an automatic rotation. It's the FCCs looking to – it's the trim that you've put in to capture that on speed. Right. And that's why you do it hands off. But as soon as you're off, you then grab, grab the, the stick, stick and, and yeah. go from there. And then, of course, you've got to go around and land on this carrier. And, it, yeah. and it's a lot bigger. I mean, 120,000 tonnes, roughly, most of the Nimitz-class carriers. Yeah, I think, gosh, I, would, right? I wouldn't even know, but it's five times it, the size it, of, a, of, a, of an illustrious uh, class. It's big, class yeah. Uh, Invincible, Lusty, Art Royal, the, 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 the carriers are now no longer in existence, but they were around 20,000 tonnes. So it is, yeah, so it's, it's five times the size. But it still looks pretty small, doesn't it, when, you, when you're approaching yeah. a ship? Yeah, so so t- talk us through an approach and, and what it feels like to trap the wire uh, for the first time. Yeah, well, so so interestingly enough, the approach to the ship is nearly identical in, F- in an F-18 as it is to a Harrier, right? So you fly the same pattern, 600 feet, you fly the same beam position, you turn at the same point, and you're aiming to roll out in the groove, which is about three quarters of a mile from the ship at about 350 call the ball. feet. Sorry, sorry, it's again, then I That's call it, the ball. That- <laughs> with the, it's, it's a real thing. Although, although call the ball is on a on a on a night K three approach. You, uh, you, you you lost the, me now. You've yeah, lost me now. Scrambling. We can talk about that later on. But um, uh, so you so you roll out into the groove and you call the ball and you say you're, you know, too, you're too low. Uh, you're too low, Maverick. I mean, scrambag. But <laughs> yeah, Rhino two five five ball late point five whatever it might be. And the, what you're looking at that stage is you've got the flight deck. So you're looking for line up on the flight deck. You've got the glide slope indication on the meatball. Uh, and then you've got angle of attack in the head-up display. Now, the first point to bear in mind is that you've got to consider the fact that the runway, the flight deck, is moving slightly sideways because it's an angled flight deck. So that's the first thing is you've got to, you've got to get used to. I'll be honest with you, I never noticed it, but, but it is nevertheless there. But your life revolves around the meatball. Now, the only slight snag you've got with the meatball is that the meatball works in the opposite direction to the glide slope. You are the ball. So if you are high... <laughs> right, yeah. So if you're high... On the approach, you will see a high ball. 
Now, if you were going down your 787 with the ILS and you saw the glide slope at the top of the deflection, that would mean that you were what, Andrew? Low. Yeah, right. On a carrier, if you see God, that... God, I got that right. <laughs> that would have been embarrassing, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. So on a, on a carrier, if you see that, you're high because you are the ball. And what the ball shows you is where your aircraft is reference to the datum. And then you just drive it down. You're always controlling glide slope on power. Power, 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 all the way down. And you're trying to keep that ball centered all the way down. And then you don't flare, obviously. You come into the wires. As soon as you feel the deceleration, you slam straight to full power because the easiest way to fail is to come back to idle. And then it's a kind of a controlled crash because you're flying at about 135 knots or so. And my first carrier landing, I just, I don't remember the landing because I kind of thought there would be like this very heavy arrival. I, I just remember flying, 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 stop. And yeah. I'm stationary on a, on the flight deck on aircraft carrier. <laughs> we're full after <laughs> Yeah, we're full. We're just going, what, what, what the, what just happened there? But it is absolutely fantastic. And then you kind of start to get the hang of it. And then they send you off to go and do it at night. And, and the way that, that, that carrier flying was described to me is that, Think of think of day day carrier flying as being at a great party. You never want it to end. And then, you know, have another drink, have another shot. This is awesome. Yeah. This is the best night ever. And then the night carrier landing is the hangover the following morning, where you're like, "What am I doing? Why am I here?" Uh, and that was definitely a, a different level again, a step up yeah. altogether. Wow. A real disorientation off the catapult shop because the acceleration. Yeah, I can imagine. It's a black hole, isn't it? Black yeah. hole. So yeah. I really, really had to work hard on my climb of my first uh, catapult. Well, a lot shot. of people that are not or have no, not flown in naval operations don't understand that you know uh, flying over the sea at night, um, apart from the stars, and sometimes there might not be any stars, or even if they are, sometimes the stars will be reflected in the ocean, and it all looks the same, and it's very, very easy to get disorientated. Yeah, it is absolutely. Uh, uh, Apart from those differences, Simon, and flying the aircraft, how would this, I'd imagine there's some pretty significant cultural differences between operating the British forces, the Royal Navy, and then going on exchange with the US Navy. What Would that be true to say? Do you know, I, 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 yes, there were. Um, but I think our similarities far outweighed our differences. Um, where there were differences, they were, they were kind of minor and they were in sort of technical procedures only. Uh, the U.S. Navy had a certain way of joining in close formation, which is co-altitude, belly up on a collision course. Now, if you do that in the U.K., you get shouted at very, very quickly. That's that's regarded as a safety point. Yeah, because for, for the people that haven't flown formation here, it typically if I was – so I think I understand what you're saying. So if, if I was joining in formation on another aircraft in the U.K., let's just assume it's a really simple one. That aircraft's flying straight and level ahead and I'm going to formate on it. I would approach slightly to one side, below it – so that if I was going a bit too fast, I could just fly past it and not collide with it. Then once I'd, I'd stabilised slightly to one side below it, and, and I wasn't going to go past it, I would move up into the position I'd be in vertically in formation, and then I would slowly move in. Uh, so it was called forward, up and in. Um, and, and that was all uh, all designed to avoid us hitting each other, essentially. So co-out would be completely different to that by the sound. Well, of and that's and that's it is, and that, but that's based upon the the amount of available airspace above the aircraft carrier. So there's a reason for it. Uh, so so that that's interesting. You know, you've 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 flown formation in a certain way your entire life, been told never ever do this, and then someone says, "Oh no, this is exactly what we do." So you just crack on, right? You just you learn it. You, you do you know you learn the procedures, and you can do it completely safely. Uh, and then the only other thing I'd say is they had uh, a very very strict 
adherence to boldface drills. So if you were doing a drill, if you said push run than press, then you would have been deemed to have got that drill wrong. So what, what so, should it have been? So they were literally verbatim. Absolutely. Uh, on, when we talk drills, we're talking re- uh, reference items on checklists. So this is this is immediate action boldface emergency handling drills were absolutely verbatim, word for word, as per the card. And if it wasn't word for word, it was wrong. Did that create issues for you? I'm thinking, you know, a, a genuine question here now. You know, we someone has suffered with dyslexia. Uh, is this is, is that was that an issue? No, it was. I came out of a simulator once, and 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 I were debriefed, and and the, and the instructor said, "Look, this is how we do it." So I went to the corner store. I got a six pack of beer. I sat at home on my kitchen table, and I just learned the drills off by heart. And they just do it. They're right. That's just that's the way they do it. There's no, you know, uh, that that's it's their train set. This is their procedure. So you just go and learn it. And that's what I did. Uh, any other sort of um, cultural differences or any 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 banter, any, uh, you know, uh, the military survives on, on banter? Well, banter, um, yeah, banter in the US always comes back to, to, so it starts off with, you know, bad food, bad teeth, uh, you know, all that type of stuff, rub, warm beer. But at the end of the day, banter in the US always, always, always comes back to 1776 and the Declaration of Independence. And you can get there via various different paths, but at some point at the end of the day, you're always going to end up at, you know, particularly if you're losing an argument, it'll be like, well, well, screw you, Scranners, we won. <laughs> wow. Got to remember where, where everyone came from, though, haven't we, you know, at the end of the day? <laughs> so it was, uh, it's, 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 yeah, it's always, it was good banter. It was always, always good-natured. One of the things you can't do, you mentioned going and sitting there with a six-pack of beer on your kitchen table, uh, and I remember... Um, you know, obviously, all within the rules on uh, Royal Navy aircraft carriers, before we weren't flying, of course, you could have a beer. You know, if there was some downtime, you were allowed to have a beer. But that's not the case, is it, on the US carriers? Nope, nope, completely dry. And, I, and I'll tell you, you know, after a night arrested landing, having a beer would have been very welcome. So you just, uh, you I know, bet. get into bed with the adrenaline still flying around your body and your heart pumping and just lie rigid <laughs> in bed terrified so uh, yeah no they're completely yeah it's something that the test pilot nath gray um we interviewed spoke about he said that um they had some sort of exchange pilots uh with them on 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 the carrier and and and, uh and ordinarily they they were u.s exchange pilots on a british carrier and all of a sudden they could have a drink and they didn't really know what to do with themselves but he said they they fully indulged um in the process (laughs) so um if there was one thing that you could keep from the Royal Navy and the US Navy if you were to go and create your own military Simon Rawlins fighting force, what would those those things be? <laughs> yes, my mercenary navy. Um do you know I, I I I love the American approach to aviation. They're they're very much about common sense. They 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 tell you what you can't do. They have a rule book that's got the absolute minimum number of rules in it, and then they allow you to, to, to operate freely and employ common sense. And the other thing I like about the US Navy is that naval aviation is at the heart of what they do. So you can become a four-star admiral as an aviator. In the Royal Navy, the, 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 the truth of it, the reality of it is, uh, and this is sort of the, the general held uh, position, that if you want to become a three- or four-star admiral, you pretty much need to leave naval aviation, move into yeah. sort of surf, move into surface warfare. So again, in the U.S. Navy, their their aviators are you know right at the top, which is which is fantastic. But from a Royal Navy point of view, and you alluded to, alluded to it just then, um, life on board our ships is 
infinitely more comfortable and more enjoyable, and I would keep that. So I would have the U.S. Navy ethos <laughs> on a Royal Navy warship. Right. Okay. Sounds good to me. Was there anything really unusual that you can remember about your time uh, with the U.S. Navy? No, I don't think anything unusual. I mean, I did do one thing that was quite cool. I had to take a jet from China Lake to Lemoore, um, and it was a completely clean jet. So no pylons, no tanks on, which was really unusual. You never had jets like that. It was going into maintenance. And so I thought, well, I'll see how the F-18 performs completely clean. So I booked myself into the Black Mountain supersonic corridor. I was up there, at, you know, cutting along at 50,000 feet doing Mach 1.4. Sounds average. Sounds yeah. average, yeah. And out the right-hand side, I could see Edwards Air Force Base. And I just had one of those moments where I, where I suddenly went, do you know what, here I'm in a jet flying supersonic, probably in the exact same airspace that Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in 1947. Amazing. And that's kind of like, that's kind of a weird, that's, and I had one of those moments. And of course, the other interesting thing about it is it's so easy to go supersonic in one I know, you think about what what those guys and did. And what those guys did to make it, I just plugged the burners in and, and we went through the number, I went through the number. So I did have a moment there where I sat there and went, this is quite a privilege to be supersonic in that, in this airspace. It happens, you know, I'm trying to think the last time, I didn't have anything as cool as that happened, but you know, I think aviation's full of those amazing moments I'm, i think probably most recently for me it would have been flying a glider out in south africa up at fifteen thousand feet on the edge of a thunderstorm with lightning coming out of it heavy rain and uh, but going up at about 1400 feet per minute in, in a glider obviously with no engine i'm just thinking oh, this is incredible what an yeah, incredible experience uh, no one else around and it's something you can't um translate in any language to anyone that hasn't experienced it. That's a privilege. And it really is a privilege, isn't it? And that's that's why we do it, isn't it? We, yeah. We've got this passion and we recognise that privilege and what we do. Okay, so uh, there was a an unusual thing then uh, that happened to you during this tour, and it links back to um, The Apprentice, the BBC programme, The Apprentice. And um, everyone's now thinking, what, what, could, what could that possibly be? This uh, US uh, pilot, uh, sorry, Royal Navy pilot flying the US Navy on exchange and this connection to The Apprentice. Can you tell us what it was? Yeah, well, I met my wife in the US uh, and then we came back to the UK. And uh, if you are an Apprentice fan, uh, then I am married to Marianne Rawlins, star of the 2019 <laughs> Apprentice. Absolutely amazing. I think the most amazing thing for me is that you actually found someone that would marry you, agree to marry you. So it's quite bang to be honest with you. I was, I, I was surprised as well. <laughs> and Marianne is a, was a fantastic contender on The Apprentice. Really enjoyed watching it and uh, looking forward to catching up with you guys soon, hopefully, once this proper lockdown hopefully ends. Yeah. Um, you've then moved back to uh, the UK and into your last role within the Royal Navy. Um, as you alluded to uh, a short while ago in, in the Royal Navy, it's very common for people as they get promoted to move out of flying roles. And that's exactly what happened to you. So what what did you end up doing? Yeah, so so in the Navy, you've kind of got a choice. If you want to stay flying, you're not going to be promoted. But if you want to get promoted, and for me, I'd always wanted to be a squadron commander. I still think it's the a real privilege, the ultimate honour to be a fighter squadron boss. And so I, I took promotion into a staff tour, again, working on the F-35, but but very much firmly on the ground behind a desk. Yeah, it's. It, it, I can imagine that that must be an incredible feeling to be a squadron commander. In fact, a couple of our friends now are going to be, I think one of them is going to be the first uh, boss of the operational conversion year, F-35, or one yeah. of the first bosses. Another one's going to be the first boss of the Royal Na- first ever Royal Navy F-35 squadron. Uh, um, just an amazing, uh, must be an amazing thing to have that. Um, 
what did you enjoy about that role? Is there anything you say you you, you still took away as you as you move towards the end of your time in the Royal Navy? Did you enjoy the staff it's, role? It, 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 I, but again, I said beforehand, most pilots don't enjoy staff roles. But what's interesting is doing something whereby you are uh, involved in aviation, but you're involved in aviation management. So the budget for the F-35, we're talking hundreds of millions of pounds. The actual program yeah. is billions of billions of pounds. That was really interesting to be in, to be involved with that, to see how, you know, how we go through this procurement process, to debunk some of the myths that are out there about military procurement. It's not as bad as you read. And most of that's not what, what does get wrong is normally not the fault of the Ministry of Defence. So that was kind of interesting to do that programme project management with is it the, si- is it the fault of you? Uh, is it the fault of you? Scrambling? Yeah, blame me. You can blame me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm the reason for it. Any procurement decisions that are made in the next 10 years or as a function of uh, your last role in the Royal Navy? Yeah, no, my uh, fault. <laughs> Taking aside, um, obviously you're missing flying a little bit. So you, uh, had you managed to sort of get into any other uh, flying since you finished that tour on the F-18? I did. I got myself on the Air Experience flight as one of the staff pilots, and, and I still do that. I'm not doing it at the moment, Amazing. obviously, because of because of COVID. But I absolutely love it. And the the irony of it is, my first ever flight in a military aircraft was a chipmunk of the AF, and my last ever flight in a military aircraft will be a tutor of the AF. So full circle. Isn't that amazing? It has come full full circle. And um, I, I just, uh, we spoke about it at the beginning. I just loved my time getting into a chipmunk, one of those weird parachutes that went under your backside and a helmet that didn't quite fit walk, properly. You couldn't walk straight, could you? You, had you to couldn't walk, walk out straight. Like, like you had an accident. <laughs> exactly. But I remember seeing it. I, I don't think I ever got to see the face of the instructor because the right. chipmunk if, if people don't know what it is it's tandem so the instructor the, uh, was sat in the front and you would sit in the in the back is that right or was it the other way around yeah no student I, in the back yeah student in the back uh, whereas the the, the tutor the grub tutor your uh, experience flying now you sit side by side so you can see them but i don't think i ever saw the face of the instructors and i of course every time they say you know you know what, what do you want to do and i just go i just want to do aerobatics arrows arrows every time leaps and i so I, I can still almost photograph it or videographic memory of flying in a chipmunk I'd love to get back in one actually and go and do a loop, but I think being able to go and do that flying on the air experience flight now must be epic. Um, yeah. And um, and and do you see that the young people that come flying with you and you you say, yeah, I was a you know Harry pilot flying the F eighteen. Do you get a sense that you know they're sort of looking up at you uh, with a bit of awe almost? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of the time, a lot of the cadets are a bit nervous, so you have to try and sort of set them at ease and just talk them through them. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, but it's a, again, I'm going to use the word privilege. I really, really enjoy it, and uh, it's it's a great organisation. And it's great to just do some basic flying again, isn't it? Yep. I've spoken briefly there about gliding. I absolutely love gliding. Um, weirdly, um, racing other gliders, joining thermals with other gliders is a bit like air combat. And again, unless you've done both of them, you can't really um, understand what I'm talking about. But I love it. And and it might sound a bit odd, but I'd rather be flying my glider than a 787 these days, although I do enjoy flying a 787. Talking of which, um, all of those years... Uh, Flying flight simulators uh, back in uh, RAF Valley when the rest of us were having a few beers were not wasted uh, because you have uh, embarked upon a new mission to transition to the airline world. Is that something you'd say that actually you've always always wanted to do? Yeah, I think so. Um, interesting enough, that with everything, there's a push and a pull factor, isn't there? So I said beforehand, I, I really wanted to be a squadron commander. Uh, but unfortunately, life kind of got in the way of that. And um, it, it just... 
wasn't going to work for me and my family with the sort of the conditions and returns of service that were being put on it. And so with a, a pretty heavy heart, I had to sort of, you know, let go of, of, of one ambition. But likewise, there's been always a draw towards the airlines. And so I dusted off my frozen ATPL and, and started the process of, of applying to the airlines again, but, but cognizant of the fact that, you know, what, seven, eight years ago, my last airline interview resulted in a thanks, but no thanks. That thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I know that we sort of we'd known each other a long time, but we 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 hooked up again, um, and you popped along to grab a bit of training with us. What would you say to people out there that may be um, leaving the forces and and thinking about making that move into the airlines? Um, how how difficult did you find it? I mean, I think I think we underestimate how difficult it is, and it's not necessarily that the airlines aren't interested in what we have to offer. It's just the way in which you can put the skills that you've learned through a military career and, and make them attractive to an airline. So it's not about telling you what to say. Uh, what your course is really good at doing is about saying, right, he, you know, what have you done? How would you answer that question? Here's how you can rephrase that to make that attractive to an airline. And so for me, that's what I found absolutely fan, you know, brilliant about the course. And, and I was su- successful at the, first, at the first interview after that course. But of course, we're now into this um, COVID-19 situation, a pretty grave time for um, airlines, definitely a grave time for a lot of employees. How's that affecting things for you, Simon? Well, I mean, there's definitely going to be a pause. There's no, there's no two ways about that. I've been pretty lucky as, as one door has closed, or if it hasn't closed, it's maybe been you know, slightly put ajar. Uh, another opportunity has opened up, so I'm 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 going to still be involved uh, with uh, with the F-35. We won't say what it is yet because it's not confirmed, but I'm pretty excited about that. And then we'll see what happens with the airlines. You know, um, I, I still have an aspiration to go that way uh, eventually at some point. I think we all at the moment just need to sit back and, and wait and see what's 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 going on with uh, with the new courses. I mean, I've already been recruited, so I'm in that way at an advantage. But I, I, I don't see a course happening in the near future, put it like that. No. Now, you probably think that you've got away with this. Uh, you, I know, have listened to all of the podcasts uh, released so far. And we've got a section called the uh, Winging It. And I always find it difficult to say w- Winging It. But winging we've it. got our Winging It um, section now, uh, where we're going to ask you some questions which are uh, most likely non-aviation related. Um, so I'd like you to sort of put your thinking cap on briefly. And, um, and I'm going to ask you these questions. So are you ready for your Winging It question, Simon? All right, go for it. I'm nervous, but go for it. Okay, so um, what is your best tip for making the world a better place? Oh, gosh, right. Okay. Um, Just be nice, right? Just be nice. Be polite. I think if we can just be a bit nicer to each other, even if we disagree with people, we can still be nice and polite. Uh, So that's what I would say. Look after people, definitely. I was thinking if, if, if all of us just asked someone maybe that you've not hooked up with for a while, hey, how you doing? How you doing, mate? You know, or a stranger, just say, hey, how are you doing today? It, does, it leaves, for me, it makes me feel better. And, and, and even if you don't get a response you want, hey, what, you know what, be nice. Great answer. Like it. Okay, last one then. What is the best compliment you've ever received? Oh, God, that's a tricky one. I'll have to think now because I haven't received many. Um... It wasn't being my friend. Obviously, that wasn't compliment enough. <laughs> do you know what? I, here we go. Do you know what? I'll tell you what I really, really enjoyed about my time in the US was the appreciation that they have towards their military. And everywhere you go in yes. uniform, people are always thank you for your service. And I remember going into Boise, Idaho once on a Sunday, flying back to China Lake. And we'd gone to this great barbecue restaurant to get a bit of lunch. We had a couple of hours on the ground. And as we came to leave, 
We asked for the bill or the check. And uh, the waitress came up and said, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. That, that, that table over there have covered it. And there was a, a group of old, old guys, probably veterans themselves, who had brought our lunch, didn't want any recognition for it, any fanfare. They just raised their glasses and they said, thank you for your service, fellas, or thank you yes. for your service, guys, because it was America. And uh, I, I think sometimes in the UK we can think that's a bit cheesy. It's not. It's great. It's really good to be how they look after their services over there. So I think that was the biggest compliment, having lunch brought for me in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> Yeah, I remember going uh, during my officer training, we went on a two week trip to um, the States. And one evening, it was a, a night in New York, and we went out in uniform. Now, I wouldn't dare go out in uniform in the UK for fear of something terrible happening. But there we were um, in our white Navy uniform in New York on a Saturday night. And it was quite honestly one of the best nights of my life. Everywhere we went was it was like being a, it was as close as as being a celebrity as I probably will ever get in it's my the, entire it's, life. It's the accent I can, I can attest first hand experience. The Australian yeah. the Australian accent, right? That's, that's the, yeah, uh, that's the one, yeah. <laughs> everyone thinks you're Australian in the states. I don't know why we're British. Know. Anyway, listen, <laughs> Scrambag Simon, um, it's been a, a real pleasure to. Uh, catch up with you today to talk about your career to hear how awesome it was to go and fly the F-18 and uh, from my perspective um, a really really cool interview it's been great to, to chat to you I want to now I've got a whole bunch of questions I want to ask you uh, when we do manage to get together for a beer um, is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners before um, we finish this podcast? No, I mean, I think it's a difficult time in aviation at the moment. Uh, and what I would say is that, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've tended to catastrophize when things are going badly and maybe, you know, sit on your hands. I think we'll get through this. It might take a while, but I, but I think we'll get through this. And I, and I think that aviation is still a, a great place to work. I agree. I agree. Thanks again, Simon. Really nice to hear from you. It's been great. Lovely to speak to you, Andrew.